tent. We uh, don't offer the animal sacrifices anymore, but we uh, are here to perform a certain type of sacrifice on this day. Now, it's a day of atonement, or has been used many times, of becoming at one, or at one mint. And I had a sermon some time back about, I guess it's been two or three years now, showing how uh, the Day of Atonement pictures the actual wedding of the Lamb. So it is a day of becoming at one with God. There are many meanings for the Day of Atonement. Let's go on down here and pick up a couple points. You shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of becoming at one, to make an atonement for you before the eternal your God. So certain things have to happen, pictured by this day, that make us at one with God. Of course, the most obvious is we know that Isaiah tells us that our sins separate us from God. And the penalty of sin is death. Therefore, the separation, the distance, or the breach, or many other ways the Bible terms it, between man and God has to be removed so closeness and at one month can occur. We work on this as a congregation so that we are at one together in Christ. We work on it in our relationship with Him, that we be at one with God, because peace will ensue when that occurs. So this is a very solemn day. Let's go on down. Whatsoever soul it be, verse 29, that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. So fasting today is a very critical issue. Fasting is done, as we know from Isaiah 58 and other scriptures, to humble us, to turn away the wickedness of the human mind and nature, to blunt it, in other words, uh, when you're hungry and thirsty, it can help take sin away. So God says, if I'm going to be completely at one with you, this is a day for fasting. It is a day that will cut us off if we don't. Whatsoever soul it be that does any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. Uh, see, isn't this somewhere in here it says no work? Uh, I thought it was right here, maybe I overlooked it, where it says not even the preparation of food. It's okay to, to cook on the other holy days, but not on atonement. Maybe it's not right here, it's in another place. Uh, well, why would you need to pre prepare food anyway if you're not going to be eating? But no work whatsoever, even the work of preparing food. Now, it doesn't say that about Passover in quite the same way. Passover is very solemn. It's a time when we come in for the Passover service in specific 
where we don't do our normal fellowship and laughter and kidding each other and, you know, the, the pleasantries and handshakes and so on that we normally do at any other time. And it has been stressed over the years that Passover was a very solemn time. And indeed it is. But I think it could be easy to make a case that atonement is the most solemn day of the year. More solemn even than Passover. Let's ask a question. Does atonement make Passover possible? Or does Passover make atonement possible? In other words, what is the goal we're headed for? You see, Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread are the first Holy Day season of the year. And they represent a beginning, not an end in itself. It makes possible for sin to be forgiven through the death of Christ and His blood. Without that beginning, there could be nothing else. We can't proceed toward being like God or Godhood unless our past can be removed, our sins forgiven, and an opportunity to move forward occurs. So his death was a very solemn thing. God dying for us, yes. But that's only the beginning. Days of unleavened bread are a time that we continue to put sin out of our lives. We make some sacrifices to get rid of our way of thinking and living. But we need help. So the next time that is holy is Pentecost. Now that pictures, among other things, of course, the coming of God's Spirit because we can't overcome sin on our own. We have to have help. So we need Pentecost to represent to us that God is working with us with His Spirit so that we might overcome and reach our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is not Passover. Feast of Trumpets is a very joyous day. We don't look upon it as a solemn day, do we? Well, it's a, it's a feast, and it's a holy convocation as well, but we haven't looked upon it with the solemnity that we have Passover service and Day of Atonement. Because all in all, trumpet sounds, and it's a joyous occasion that the dead would rise, and those who are alive, are alive and remain arise. My tongue is not working as well today as normal having to struggle to enunciate. Uh, mouth's a little dry. But it's a joyous time. But is even that an end in itself? Now, it's a tremendous upgrade to suddenly become immortal. We're here to become God. But is that the ultimate goal? Why did God call us out now, as the first fruits, to be in the first resurrection? You see, other people come later. They're not in the first resurrection. They come in the second 
and have their chance at salvation then. Well, God is working with us for a more important reason even than salvation. Herbert Armstrong touched on this at times when he'd say, you're not in the church for your salvation. You're here to do a work. You're here to do something for God. Now, I don't think he ever completely understood atonement in that sense in it being the wedding of the Lamb. But what's the purpose of the first fruits? 144,000 chosen out of a much greater calling to be the bride of Christ. Now, what's more important than that? The whole purpose of the church through the ages has been to to provide a wife for the Son of God. And she must be holy and without spot or without blemish. And in fact, Ephesians 5 says that we are to conduct our marriages in such a way that they begin to reflect more and more the kind of marriage that Christ will have with the church. And it's very, very difficult for us as human beings, male and female, to entwine our lives together in such a way that they reflect that. But over time, as we grow, we should be able to sublimate our own feelings and energies and desires to the good of our mate. So that the relationship becomes better and better instead of worse and worse. Now, he says he will present his bride to himself in that same chapter in Ephesians 5 without spot and without wrinkle. Now, as of today, everyone who has ever lived, save Christ himself, has had spots and wrinkles. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, where is he going to find 144,000 pure virgins? Well, obviously, it has to be spiritual virgins, but many of us came out of Catholicism or Protestantism or wherever we came from. So we weren't even spiritual virgins either, were we? What has to occur from the time of Passover until the Day of Atonement is a transformation And a system has to be in place which will cleanse us of all sin and make us without spot or without wrinkle by wedding time. So the Passover was only the beginning of that. It was what enabled the transformation to begin. It wasn't the finished product by any means. The Holy Spirit came to help further along the process. The Feast of Trumpets comes along and makes a great leap forward as well by turning us from human, mortal, sinful beings into sinless, immortal, spiritual beings. That's a huge step toward preparing us as the bride for Christ.
this day as we'll go to now has other meanings that are necessary to cause that to happen. Feast of Tabernacles, in one sense, is anticlimactic for us. Because from Passover through Day of Atonement, we are being prepared, culminating in the marriage of the Lamb to his bride. That is the epitome, in one sense, for us. Our attention then turns, with the Feast of Tabernacles, to the rest of mankind that has survived Satan's attempt to destroy it all. And we begin to produce children, which is the natural process following a marriage. And then a second resurrection for all those in the past who were not given the opportunity we had so that they might also have salvation. But none of them will ever be the bride of Christ. Only those in the first resurrection and who attend the wedding supper, the 144,000 first fruits. That's all. The rest will be children, and they will grow up to become God, but they will never have the same status or the same elevation in the kingdom of God as do those who make up the queen of Christ, the queen of the king of kings. So this day, atonement, is a culmination and a fulfillment of all the preparation that went ahead of it. So that the bride herself has to be without spot and without blemish come atonement. So she is qualified to be married to the Lamb. Everything is preparation to that point. I therefore believe that atonement is more solemn in that sense by far than is even Passover. It had a very solemn beginning with the death of the Son of God. But to turn people from what we are into absolute perfection without any spot, without any blemish, is quite a feat. And that's what's being done with us. We're still struggling, aren't we? We still have trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, attitudes to fight. We still have all kinds of problems. But he says throughout Scripture that those are necessary in order to help transform us into what we have to be. And I submit to you, as we come to this feast, feast, this fast, it's a holy convocation, it's not a feast as such. But this past year we have had a lot of trials, a lot of troubles, both on the whole congregation and upon individuals. Perhaps more than we have experienced in any years past as a group. Maybe as much in the past years we've had combined as a group in the last 12 years. You know what that tells me? It tells me we're getting close. It tells me God is allowing pressure to be applied in whatever way 
pressure is coming, whether it be human nature or Satan applying it, but he's allowing it to happen so that we might do the things that we have talked about all these years. Turn to him wholeheartedly and focus more and nothing will cause you to focus like trouble. Nothing else will cause you to focus like trouble. I think he's allowing us to go back to Jerusalem this year for the first time, but I think that there's some scriptural indication that this is a very important time after all these many years of it being desolate. And Satan hates that with a passion because it will uncover the fallacies of the history that he has concocted and it will uncover a lot of his counterfeits and he is not happy at all. Now let's go on to Leviticus 16 and pick the story up here because it's germane to what I've just been saying. The Eternal spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered before the Eternal and died. That's in Leviticus 10. We won't go back there. They uh, transgressed and died. Why does he use that example here in introducing what he introduces in Leviticus 16 of these two sons dying because of transgression? Uh, it doesn't in one sense seem to fit the context unless you understand what he's going to say after this. It was a very important event. God showed that because of sin, we die. And use this example. And then he uses the rest of this chapter to show what can be done about it. And it all has to do with this day that we are gathered on today. Verse 2, And the Eternal said to Moses, Speak to Aaron your brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place, within the veil, before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. This event that occurred on the Day of Atonement was so important and had so much meaning that he was not allowed to go there at any other time. That makes it very solemn and very important, does it not? For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. God would not be there at another time, but on that day, he would be there. Now, if this picture's the wedding of the Lamb, you think the Father's not going to be there? You think Christ himself is not going to be there? This is an important date. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now these were ceremonial physical offerings, but before going before God, these sacrifices had to be done. Just as we, before we come to the marriage of the Lamb, must present ourselves, not a dead, but a living sacrifice, having put aside the sin that so easily besets us and attitudes that we come by naturally and sacrifice the self for the good of our Savior 
and the rest of the world. Now what was being done here was for the whole world of Israel at that time. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with a linen mitre shall he be attired, or headdress. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. Now we are told that we are to present ourselves in a holy fashion before God. Here, the offering was to remove sin. The clean clothes were to represent holiness. No spot or wrinkle, but totally holy. He wasn't to mix the garments, as another ceremonial thing was. They were to be linen. Not animal in this case, but linen, representing holiness. Now, it would be fairly easy, would it not, for us to read this, and we could go out and either buy or manufacture, probably, these clothes and make sure they were nice and clean, put them on, wash ourselves, put them on, and come directly here so that we were pure and clean physically. That would be fairly easy to do by comparison to going through what we need to do in prayer and asking for forgiveness and coming here spiritually clean and holy. That is a much taller order. I don't know, I was thinking of some of these things, so when I showered today, I took a, another minute or so longer than I usually do to to wash even better than usual because it was a day of atonement and I was thinking about how Aaron had to come absolutely clean before God. Now, staying in the shower and scrubbing an extra minute was a whole lot easier than praying prior to that and trying to be clean holy. The physical comes easy by comparison. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. You know, I've read through all the different sacrifices over the years. And you know, that was very, very difficult to do. And in some cases, there were hundreds or even thousands of animals slaughtered on any one holy day or new moon, whichever it happened to be. That was a lot of work and a lot of blood and stink and sweat and filthiness. It was very hard to do. And I've always been thankful that we don't have to do the animal sacrifices. Now, we may, as an example to the rest of the world, need to do that in Ezekiel's temple. But meantime, on a spiritual basis, we don't do that. But I want to just make the comparison a little bit. If what we go through on a spiritual level to present enough prayers, enough sacrifice, enough change in our lives to equate to the incredible physical thing they had to go through to 
accomplish even these sacrifices. So it was hard, it was bloody, it was difficult. It was a lot of work. So is cleaning ourselves up spiritually. So is becoming without spot and without wrinkle. That is not an easy task by any means. And if you want to compare, killing animals is easier by far than the sacrifice of the human mind and spirit and thought and bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ. Anyway, he'll take those two goats and present them before the Eternal at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one for the Eternal and the other for a scapegoat or a zazel, which means one who went himself. I think it's pretty clear, even though some get confused on it, that Satan is the one who went for himself. He went his own way. He didn't stay with God and do things for God. He went after and for himself. And this one remains alive. The other one dies, as we shall see. So, one is for God, and the other was essentially for himself. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the eternal's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. So, atonement goes back to the beginning of the plan of God, back to Passover. It starts out with the symbolism of Christ dying for our sins to make possible where we wind up on the Day of Atonement. So, it's a flashback, in a sense, of how the whole system began because the Day of Atonement, then, is the culmination of it all even greater than the Feast of Trumpets. Feast of Trumpets is secondary to atonement in that you have to be spirit and God in order to marry the Lamb. So it's an upgrade, but it's not the finished product. The finished product comes at atonement. But it begins as he says here, with Christ dying for us. Now, the other goat is here as well, and it was done not at Passover, but at atonement for a very important reason. Because Satan has been around all the way through the whole process, has he not? And still is. And he is going to bring about World War III and destroy mankind if he possibly can before this is over. God will not allow it. But he's on the scene until the Day of Atonement. Until we become completely at one with Christ in marriage and with the Father as the daughter-in-law. So he casts lots on these goats to see which one God chooses. And is not that the case with Christ and with Satan? I mean, yeah. Satan departed, went his own way for himself, but he had been designated the ruler of the earth. Now, he was his own candidate to rule the universe. 
the father produced another candidate and says, here is my candidate for ruler of the earth and the universe. So he sent his son here, who despite human nature and despite Satan himself, never sinned. He, the father chose above Satan. Had Christ knuckled under to Satan, he would not have been the ruler of the world and the universe. God made a choice. So the symbolism here is that Aaron was to cast lots on the two goats to see which one would be which. God determined that Christ would be which. And he is and will be. And Satan will be deposed, but he's still here with power yet today. So this thing is not finished by any means. And what is our biggest enemy that there is? It's Satan the devil. Our human nature is enough of an enemy, but he uses human nature. So he is more powerful than the nature itself and is able to manipulate us and use us and has mankind ever since Adam and Eve on down and still does. So our biggest enemy will be gotten rid of on this day. He will be bound and be bound then for a thousand years or almost a thousand years before being released for a short season, in which case he will again wreak havoc upon mankind very quickly turn people from God to himself. Just almost at the snap of a finger. Look at what we're up against, brethren. Look at why we have such a struggle. Satan is after us. And he works on us, day and night, through culture, through society, through our very own human nature, which is contrary to God. And he influences every last one of us to one degree or another. Every day of our lives. Now, a day that would picture him being taken by the scruff of the neck and gotten away from us entirely and forevermore has to be an incredible day in its meaning. There's an awful lot that comes together on the Day of Atonement. So he offered the lots, but the goat on which the lot fell to be the Azazel shall be presented alive before the Eternal to make an atonement with him, and let him go for himself, again his name, Azazel, into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. Now, Aaron was the high priest, and there's another scripture that says that the high priest of man has to cleanse himself before he can be a priest for the rest of the people. So, he had to cleanse himself, he had to dress right, he then had to come before God, and he had to do these things that are done, but they all point to forgiveness of sin for the people and closeness to God of the entire nation, not just himself. But he had to do this in preparation. 
That's why the ministry has double judgment, double jeopardy, much stronger and heavier judgment, because there's more responsibility there that has to be handled. And what is told the people and what is done for the people and the example for the people is taken into account. And therefore the judgment is much stiffer. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar. Remember there, we read just uh, the other day, how Isaiah says, well, I'm of unclean lips, there in Isaiah 6. And uh, I'm coming undone in the presence of God. And the cherubim took a coal from the altar and touched it to his lips to cleanse it. Uses the same example here, and that's what is being referred to there in Isaiah 6. Because the cleansing truly has to come from God, from the altar of God. It can't come from us. How can that which is dirty present itself clean? It can't. It has to have cleansing from above. Cleansing that we cannot accomplish ourselves. We can take a bath. We can put on clean clothes. The cleansing of the mind, cleansing of the spirit, that takes more. Can't do it on a physical level. That's why we have to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. So he took that from the altar before the eternal, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil, that which is normally shut off except this one day. See, they could not go before God any day of their lives except this one day. When Christ died, the veil of the temple was rent in two, and that made it possible for you and me every day to go to God. I hope we do not take that for granted. There should never be a day that goes by that we don't take into consideration the opportunity to go before God one-on-one every day of our lives. They could only go one day a year and then only the high priest of man. The people could not approach God. What an incredible opportunity we now have as a result of the Son of God dying for us and that veil being torn in half, representing access at any time, anywhere. Um, Let's see, in verse 13, And shall put the incense upon the fire before the Eternal, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. You can't come into the presence of God as a human, filthy, dirty being and not die. The result of sin is death, any sin. So all sin has to be forgiven. And on this very solemn day, That's what this is all leading up to, is all the sin being removed. He tells us in Zechariah that the sin of the land will be removed in one day. We've quoted that and others, showing that God is going to turn his face, and he's going to remove our sin, and we can again be in his good graces, and his face turned to us, not away from us. 
And these trials and troubles and tribulations we're going through are designed to help turn us to Him in such a fashion. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Eastward is important because it says Christ will come from the east. And the door of the tabernacle was faced to the east. We'll try to accomplish that up at the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll face it to the east. Not for any reason other than this. The natural slope might put it to the south, but I think east would be better if we can work it out, just as a symbolic thing. Seven times is perfection. Seven churches, seven eyes of the seven churches will focus here at the end. That's very clear in Zechariah 3 and 4 where God is doing His work. The work then was through Aaron as the high priest. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. Christ is for the people. And he died for the people. And bring his blood within the veil. Presented, in other words, before the Father. He killed that goat, took the blood to the Father, And Christ, after he died and was resurrected, had to go and be approved of the Father. First thing he did before he would allow anyone to see him or touch him. I have to go and do that. So the analogy here of this being Christ is very clear. And he is to do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he had to cleanse for himself and his family. Then he took this goat and killed it for the people. Christ had to be willing to be himself clean, as Aaron did, before he could become a sacrifice for the people. So the analogy here is perfect again. He presented himself clean, having lived this life without sin. And God approved him, and he said, your sacrifice then will be for the people. So he sprinkled upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. In verse 16, And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And and so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So Christ died for us while we were even yet sinners, did he not? He was clean. Just as represented here. But we were still in our sins. And he gave it, not only for us, but ultimately for everyone who sins. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goes in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. So Christ's sacrifice reaches all. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the eternal and make an atonement for it and shall take the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and upon it and put upon put it upon the horns of the altar round about. 
And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. There again, some ceremonial things, but it was to be done this way as a specific atonement for our sins. And when he had made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. See, the plan of God does not deal with Satan until Christ dies, until he's resurrected, until his sacrifice applies to our sins. We continue in putting them out. We receive the Holy Spirit for help. We are even then resurrected in the first resurrection and made immortal so that Satan cannot touch us. And then he is finally put away. So Satan, in the plan of God, cannot and is not dealt with until the Day of Atonement. So all this cleansing of the high priest Christ himself and cleansing of the people, and all of this has to be taken care of ahead of time. Then you deal with the problem goat. I hope this makes it clear the Azazel did not, the, the sin offering and the Azazel both did not represent Christ. One represents Satan so very clearly. Now, the one issue we will get to and address that makes people think that, but that is not the case. Let's read about it then. Christ, the people, all sin that we had is taken care of by atonement, so that we're holy, spotless, and clean. Then you have this other goat. Let's see. Uh, he brings the live goat in verse 20. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions, and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a timely, or a fit, or a qualified man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities. He is conferring the blame of our sins upon Satan. He does not die. The only way that sin can be forgiven is through death. Christ died for us and cleansed us. This live goat has the guilt or the blame for those sins placed on his head and is sent out into the wilderness. Now, what do other scriptures tell us happens to Satan? He is sent into the wilderness in chains of solitary confinement, but he doesn't die. But where does the blame for Adam and Eve's sins begin? The serpent who beguiled them, the one who deceived them, the one who turned them against God. And man has been there ever since. He is to blame. 
And it is going to rankle him greatly that that which he tried to destroy, a bride for the Son of God, will succeed. And he, on that very day, will have the sins of mankind and of that very bride laid on his head, and he will be booted out, I think, by Christ himself. Who else is qualified to take Satan and chain him in solitary confinement in a wilderness? Wilderness being defined as where no one is. Remember when the message was sent to Daniel, and the cherubim alone could not do it because of Satan, who was of equal power. So Daniel waited 21 days until the other cherub came and helped him get past Satan. It was a, what we might, well, maybe that's racist, I don't know. Mexican standoff is the term we always use. We were standing there looking at each other, both are afraid to kill each other. I, maybe it started as something from a couple of Mexicans doing it, I don't know. So maybe it's not the best choice, but it's what came to mind. But Christ has qualified, and he is stronger than Satan, and has higher office, and he is certainly the one fit to send Satan away. So he is responsible then for our sins. We have our own responsibility, but you see, through Christ, we repented of that. We asked for forgiveness. And through His blood, that forgiveness was offered. So our culpability and our responsibility in our own sin will have been washed away. The only being who will not repent of His involvement in our sin is Satan and his demons. And therefore, the guilt and the blame that they bear will be conferred upon their heads. Ours would be conferred upon ours did we not repent. But we have, and we are, and we shall. Therefore, ours can be washed away in the blood of the Lamb, who was chosen to be our Savior. But this one will not repent. Therefore, he has to be disfellowshipped because of his influence and his division among people and the kingdom of God. That is why God deals with those who would cause division and pull people away so strongly. Because it's satanic. If you want to go, go. Don't try to take others with you. You are getting yourself in trouble with God when you do. And Satan will bear forever his guilt and his negativity in pulling people away from God. Now, humans will say, well, I'm not pulling them away from God. I'm pulling them away from this group. When you affect people negatively, it has an effect on their relationship to God. We won't get into all those who have done that over the years, but just note 
that what Satan did is what humans try to do, and God deals very severely with it in the Old Testament by the ground opening. He deals with it with disfellowship in the New Testament, and ultimately the lake of fire if it is not repented of. So take very, very seriously the things you say to people and how you say them and how it could impact them in some way negatively toward God's church or toward God. Because if somebody believes this and you're pulling them away from it, you are messing with their faith and their conscience. And it could be sin to them. I believe Satan is working on this group right now, trying to divide it and scatter it. I think he's working very hard at it. Do not allow yourself to be part of that because you might wind up in trouble with God. You really might. The goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Now, that can't be Christ. He is going to be uh, in the kingdom of God with those who are his bride. He is going to be the father of all the children in the millennium and the great white throne judgment. He is going to be in the land of the living. He's going to be where there are a lot of beings and the holy angels too. Christ is not going to a land not inhabited. This cannot be referring to him. He'll let that goat go in the wilderness. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And when Christ came out of the tomb, it's remarkable that he folded his garments as he came out. That is not a natural human reaction. I think, never having been there, but I think, if I found myself suddenly alive in a cold, dark place in a rock tomb or in a coffin, that getting out of there would be my only thought. Stopping to take off and fold up my grave garments would be the last thing on my mind, more than likely. But Christ took the grave garments off and folded them and left them there. So what Aaron was doing here was symbolic of things to come in the personage of Christ himself. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offerings and the burnt offering of the people and make an atonement for himself and for the people. So before and after, or continually then, we must be clean. He shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place. Oh, let's see, I already read that. And the fat of the sin offering, verse 25, shall he burn upon the altar. And he that let go the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water and afterward come into the camp. Now, says we're not to touch sin. We're to stay away from sin, to flee from sin. So, here, even afterward, 
he washed himself very carefully and made sure that he came back clean. Well, he had just bathed and just dressed, so he was clean, but he had to redo it. This is a continual thing, is it not? We might go in and have a wonderful prayer, we might ask for forgiveness, and we might come out feeling that God has forgiven whatever it was we were praying about, but it isn't very long until human nature, wrong thoughts, will again encroach upon our mind. So, it's a continual thing. Uh, verse 27, And the bullock for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall one carry forth without the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their dung. Can't have sin within the camp. That which represented sin has to go. That's why the Azazel had to be sent out into solitary confinement in the wilderness where there's no inhabitant. Get him completely away so that he can have no influence whatsoever. And this shall be a statute forever to you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the eternal. So in summary here, apart from all the ceremonial things they went through, he says this day is a day to cleanse us, to make us whole and clean before God. What could be more important? What could be more solemn? Even after Passover, when Christ had been offered for us, we had that period of time afterward to continue putting sin out. The days of unleavened bread. Here, we have a time when sin will be completely removed and never touch us again. How incredible is that? You see, that's a fulfillment of a process that was started at Passover. I sinned after Passover. You sinned after Passover. We struggle with ourselves on Passover day and the next six to get sin out. It was still there. It was still there at Pentecost, and we needed help from the Holy Spirit. It was still there until trumpets, when we're changed and no longer have a sinful nature. But you know, even spirit beings could and did sin. Satan and a third of the animal, animals, angels, having life, Immortal sin. It was one being, Satan the devil, who influenced one-third of the holy angels of God that he was right and God was wrong. So, that being, on atonement, is gotten rid of 
and our, as, far, as far as any influence upon us, once and for all, forever. We're totally clean before God. Not only that, but not unlike Passover, we stay that way. That's why this is the most solemn day of the year, even above Passover. That was the beginning. This is the culmination. And I don't mean to demean or put down Passover in any means in saying that or what Christ did. But what he did then was the beginning of a work that he then completes at the Day of Atonement. What is more important, the beginning or the completion of something? I like the beginning of dinner. It is a wonderful thing. But I far treasure above that the completion of dinner. If you see the comparison there. Both are very significant. If you don't begin, you don't end. But it's what we eat when it's done that is the best. So this is a statute forever. We fast on this day. We don't fast at Passover. Fasting draws you close to God, draws you near to God, and it helps put Satan away from you. That's why we do it every year is to banish Satan through drawing near to God. And Peter says, if you draw near to God, then Satan will flee from you. So if we want Satan to leave us alone, the very, very best way to accomplish that is to draw very close to God. Because Satan doesn't like to be around God. Now, if he can pull us away and make us sin, he likes to be around us. But if we don't sin and we draw near to God, he gets uncomfortable. And he goes somewhere else where he can have more effect. So let's not let him affect us. This day has great meaning in that. Because it pictures a time when he can no longer, ever again, affect us. At all. He's going to affect people, as I said, at the end of the millennium, very quickly for a short time. That's how powerful he is. But we will be safe from that because of this atonement, this marriage to Christ. He'll clean you from all your sins before the eternal. It shall be a Sabbath of rest to you, and you shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. These other fasts we keep, as per Zechariah 7 and 8, he says will turn into feasts of joy. Because that which occurred historically and which is occurring today will be taken care of, and no longer will you need to fast, it will become a feast. But this one, I think, will be a memorial forevermore because of the great breach that occurred in the kingdom of God because of Satan and those that he drew away. Drawing people away is the biggest sin that a human being can commit. That is the great sin of Satan the devil. It is unpardonable. Satan will not be pardoned for what he has done to mankind. 
Verse 32, And the priest whom he shall anoint, and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement, and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments. And doesn't he say that when Christ returns, Revelation 20, 21, that the woman, the, the bride, will have prepared herself, and she'll be wearing the holy white garments of righteousness. So the Day of Atonement is tied up with Satan being bound, Christ making his bride his wife, and everyone will be holy and clean from that moment forevermore. And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation and for the altar. And he shall make an atonement for the feasts and for, for the priests and for all the people of the congregation. In other words, everything has to be cleaned up and made whole, holy and right. Everything. It is our goal. It is our purpose. It's what we struggle with. But brethren, it's going to come to pass. Maybe... Over the years and decades, we didn't look upon atonement as being as important as it truly is. But the meaning here is the culmination of all the plan of God. When He can welcome us, not just changing us, but then a few days later, welcoming us and marrying us. So the first resurrection isn't the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is at one month with Christ and the Father in the kingdom of God forever. That's the ultimate. There again, trumpets just makes atonement possible. Without trumpets, <laughs> we wouldn't reach this state. And this shall be an everlasting statute to you to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as he eternal commanded Moses. Now, there's an additional scripture we can go to. I think I'll go there briefly, because this is something we haven't really touched on as yet. But it shows, again, what I've been driving home in this sermon in Leviticus 25. The Eternal spoke to Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath to the Eternal. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest to the land, a Sabbath for the Eternal. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard, and so on. So he's setting up here the seven-year cycle embodied by the third tithe uh, cycle, the third and the sixth years out of seven. The Sabbath, or the seventh year, every seven years, a Sabbath, or a time of rest. And Christ ties that in in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, and how the millennium is pictured as a Sabbath of rest for all mankind. Now, this is something that went on for seven cycles, or 49 years. And then, the 50th which was the Jubilee. Let's go on down. Verse, uh, let's see. 
verse 8, And you shall number seven Sabbaths of years unto you, seven times seven years, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto you forty-nine years. So he makes it clear, seven times seven is forty-nine. Then, after forty-nine years, shall you cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, In the day of atonement shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. So the year of Jubilee was declared at atonement. That was the year all debts were released. Now you released personal debts and so on every seven years. But in the 50th year, all land, would go back to the original owners. Now, he instituted this when they went into the promised land under Joshua, wandering in the wilderness. It would have meant nothing. But he instituted it as they went in, and clearly, they went in at the end of 50 years and started a whole new cycle when they crossed the river. First year. They were to count seven times seven, forty-nine. And see, Joshua, the first thing he really did, apart from getting rid of the enemies that were in the land, was divide the land. That was his primary job, divide the land among all the people. And then people being people, they would, for foolishness or greed or whatever reasons, bad management, not budgeting, not taking care of their finances, putting their wants ahead of their responsibilities, whatever, they would lose their land. Wouldn't be theirs anymore. That was one reason you always had the poor in the land, because there were people who would always mismanage, abuse and misuse, and be selfish. They would lose their land. But the children would not have to suffer beyond a certain point. Every 50 years, the land went right back to the families where it had originally been granted. They started all over again. And again, there would be some foolish who would lose it. Those who were enterprising and energetic would lease land from others and increase themselves over that 50 years. And it even says, as we go on in the chapter, that you couldn't really sell the land, but you could lease it out for whatever was left of the Jubilee time. If it was in the 36th year, then you'd only rent it for the last 14. Or 13, it would be, I guess. And it would go back. What a beautiful system to give the children, the grandchildren, another start when others had moved up. But it also pictures this time on the Day of Atonement when we will be released from Satan and his influence, be released uh, released personally as Bride of Christ from our sinful nature and sin entirely and be completely clean and without spot and wrinkle before God. And it also pictures that time when we will begin to work with the children of God to bring them to the same holy, non-sinning state that we have reached. 
So the third tide circle cycle, the year of release, and the Jubilee are also tied up in the Day of Atonement. It is a very, very important spiritual lesson in the Bible. That's why God instituted it the way that he did. So that God would get his inheritance, as he puts it, which he gave to the feast, or the priests, and he said, take it all, the whole tithe, to the priests. Then he has one that is designated by use to be saved, to be kept, the whole thing, all the increase of your field, a tithe to go to the feasts. To keep the feasts in the way that God wanted them kept. It had no other use. All of it was to go for the feast. The feast represent what? The plan of God of salvation. And he wants those times in the year to be particularly notable because they represent the beginnings of salvation with Passover and culminate in the last great day when all mankind will have had opportunity at and most will have succeeded at salvation. So the feast, the feasts of God are very, very important in understanding the spiritual plan of God. So he has to set aside 10% for administration of the nation of the church, 10% to make sure his feasts are noted and kept in the way that they ought to be because they are so important in the plan of God. And then thirdly, every third and sixth year, he introduced another tithe, which he said you kept in your gates. You didn't take it to the feast. You didn't give it to the priest. But it was still a whole tithe, all of it, all of that tenth. For what? The widow, the orphan, the destitute, those who were in need. That represents what? It represents unselfishness. It demonstrates giving not only to God and to yourself at the feast, but for anyone else who had need, essentially. Now, the spiritual lesson there is we don't go through the first resurrection and the Feast of Trumpets just for ourselves. We don't marry the Lamb on the Day of Atonement just for ourselves. The goal and the purpose, then, of that marriage immediately becomes take care of the children that God will produce through Christ and His bride. They will have come through the millennium starving, Diseased, barely alive, strangers in the land with nothing. And we will be called upon to take care of them, to feed them, to clothe them, to house them, to take care of them. So the spiritual principle there is so very, very important that God set aside, not an every year thing, but a third and a sixth, to be sure that the poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan are taken care of. It is very important in the plan of God. So he set aside an entire tithe 
welfare program, if you will, to take care of people in this day and age because it has such incredible spiritual meaning for the future when we are called upon to feed and clothe the whole world, to heal them, to help them, to bring them to the salvation that we ourselves have attained. I don't know that I've heard it explained in quite that way before, but it culminates in the Jubilee, does it not? Seven times the cycle, and then freedom and release from sin, freedom and lease, release for the people of the earth from poverty and disease and famine and the sword. There's an awful lot that comes together. And that's why God tied the tithing cycle to the year of release and the jubilee. It has great spiritual meaning for the whole world and our part in it. Because when we are made perfect, and totally at one with Christ on atonement, then we move to the Feast of Tabernacles and begin to care for the whole world. What a picture. What a plan. See why this day is so solemn and why we must fast and turn to God and be cleansed. And we need to pray before this day is over along these lines. Maybe we already have, but a fast lasts until sundown. And we still have some time to do our part to make sure, as Aaron did, before he went in and after the ceremony or the service, he cleansed and washed some more. I think that's a good example and has great spiritual meaning for us. So, we have one more Sabbath between now and the Feast of Tabernacles. And then we have the time when we can begin the third tithe assistance, the third tithe help for the whole world. That's why he said, after you have kept the third tithe, Pray for a blessing on Israel. It's not just that we sacrificed. It's the spiritual meaning that going through that has for the whole world. That's why it's so important in the plan of God. And that's why, then, we can come and ask a blessing, not on ourselves for having sacrificed and done it, but on for all of Israel, because it represents that program which will be introduced immediately after our wedding to, the, to Christ to begin to help the whole world. That's why the blessing is conferred not on the individual for having individually kept it, but so that all Israel, and remember the Gentiles, will become Israelites as well. So it extends to all people. The plan of salvation is ultimately open to all people. And the whole world, everybody, is going to need an extension of third tithe for the widow and the orphan, 
and the needy for everyone on earth. Can we see the bigger picture?